Hello and welcome to our Earth podcast. I'm your host Celeste Kellogg and I'll be sharing research stories, ongoing work and environmental conversations with you. Time to hear different perspectives from the researchers, scientists, businesses and people working to understand our environment and helping to create a better balance between our Earth and society. This is a space for environmental curiosity, hope and learning. What's going wrong? What are we doing about it? And what's going right? We have so much to learn from one another, so I really hope that these conversations spark your environmental curiosity. On this episode of our Earth podcast, we have Rachel Steenson, who is a second year PhD student at the University of Stirling. She's an ecologist with an interest in ornithology and ecosystem services, and she's currently researching the changes in bird populations, in particular, dippers along river systems. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Hi Celeste. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm really excited to hear more about your research and I know you've been you've been out in the field a lot lately so um, I'm sure you'll have a couple of good field field stories to tell us. So let's start um, closer to the beginning. What was your path here? It seems like you've done so much before your PhD. You've done um, field assistant work, research assistant work, data analysis. You've done a master's. But um, where did your curiosity with animals and you know research in general maybe begin? Um, <laughs> my curiosity with animals in particular began a very long way back. Um, my parents are quite fond of reminding me that I used to dress up as a tiger a lot as a kid um, <laughs> and I've got really fond memories of visiting aquariums and zoos and safari parks um, but I think I struggled a bit at high school um, because what you're taught is what's on the curriculum and that isn't necessarily what you're interested in mm-hmm. and I knew that I wanted to study biology Um, But I just didn't know what area of biology that I wanted to work in. Um, So I came to Stirling University for my undergraduate and began to get a feel for the research areas that I was interested in. And unfortunately, these stayed very, very broad topics. Um, (laughs) I loved modules on ecology and animal behaviour, but also disease dynamics and microbiology. And that meant that when I left university, I still had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I ended up working in hospitality for two years and applied for endless biology related jobs and ended up staying in hospitality because I I couldn't find any jobs that I was experienced or qualified for. Mm -hmm. And one day my friend shared a job advertisement with me uh, that she'd seen on Twitter. It was for a field assistant uh, to help with data collection for a PhD that was looking at environmental and genetic variation in reproductive investment decisions made by sow sheep females to their lambs. Um, And it was on St Kilda. Awesome. Um, For those who don't know, St Kilda is an island about, I think it's maybe 60 miles off the west coast of Scotland. It's this little set of islands and it's just absolutely incredible very remote mm-hmm. um i spent two sets of two weeks carrying out behavioral watches on soy sheep and fell in absolutely in love with everything about it i asked loads of questions about research um and 
this PhD student's path to her PhD and what she found about it, what she liked, what she didn't like. And off the back of that, decided to apply for a master's programme at Glasgow University um, that covered the topics that I was interested in, which is <laughs> ecology, conservation and epidemiology. Um, my master's project that I worked on looked at tick infestations in woodland birds and okay. how birds might contribute to transmission cycles of Lyme disease in humans. Mm. Um, right up my alley of that nice broad subject area that I've gotten <laughs> so familiar with. But over the course of doing the project, I realised that research itself was really quite enjoyable. Um, it's that kind of setting out with an idea or a question, figuring out the appropriate methods to find the answers and then solving a multitude of problems along the way. <laughs> and then yeah. either getting the answer or finding more questions that also need answering. Like <laughs> it, it was just wonderful. Um, after my master's, I had a brief contract as a data analyst at the University of Glasgow, um, which mostly involved working with large data set metadata in R. So not data sets themselves, but all of the accompanying information. So who collected it? Where was it collected? How long for? All of the geographic data that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I was responsible for co-developing an app through a package called Shiny, um, which was mostly for internal use by researchers in the Institute to act as almost like a database for them. So they knew who was doing what and who they could collaborate with. Um, so a really interesting position, not very much to do with animals at all um, or ecology as such, but a really good opportunity to learn and develop my coding skills. Absolutely. Which are quite indispensable now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. From this position, I moved to working as a research assistant in the Katie Hampson lab, um, which focuses on improving detection, monitoring and treatment of rabies, primarily in Tanzania, but with collaborators worldwide. Um, rabies is a zoonotic disease. It's, it's transferred from animals to humans and unless treated is almost always fatal. So it's a really important disease to actually carry out research on. Um, disease ecology and dynamics was not my speciality by a long shot, but I'm still interested in it now. Um, and I found a lovely home in the team where I was able to support multiple projects with data processing, visualization and analysis and learn an awful lot about rabies in the process. Mm -hmm. um, I also met so many wonderful and incredible people um, along the way that in part helped me to make the decision to start pursuing a PhD. And I think I was very lucky. I, I saw my PhD advertised and thought that is me to an absolute T. <laughs> it involved so many things that I was interested in. Um, and while I had a lot of the skills that were likely desirable for the project, I didn't necessarily have much experience in conducting my own research other than my master's project. And mm -hmm. all I had was this little voice in the back of my head going, they want more, they want more. Um, but I think all of my previous experience definitely helped and I wouldn't change the path that has led me here today, uh, not for anything. Wow, what a journey. I absolutely... I want to touch upon a couple of the bits you mentioned. I love that you um, referred to the couple of the years that you worked in hospitality when you were when you were applying for different 
jobs, like biological jobs. Firstly, because um, I think that's the case for many of us. Sometimes you leave university, you're maybe not sure what you want to do, and you work in something more general like hospitality, and you don't always find it easy to get the jobs that you want. Um, but in hindsight, you think, oh, wow, well, if I'd got one of those jobs, I'd never have got to do any of the things that you've done since. Exactly. Um, yeah, so it's really nice to see how the world works. All those rejections <laughs> led you to to this kind of place of um, happiness and curiosity and um, kind of challenging satisfaction, shall we call it? <laughs> yeah, I think as well. It's it's something I often joke about, but equally mean um, that everyone should have to work in a job like hospitality for at least a year or so. It, it should be required because you learn so much. I mean, the transferable skills that I learned over those two years were incredible, particularly how to deal with different people, um, mm -hmm. just indispensable skills that yeah. had I not worked in hospitality, I was, and still am a little, I was incredibly shy. I, I yeah. don't think I would have had the confidence to do a lot of the things I've done over the last couple of years had I not worked in hospitality and been forced to talk to people almost <laughs> <laughs> yes I know what you mean I know so exactly what help. you mean yeah and I really like that you um mentioned that you kind of discovered your desire to do a PhD and to continue research through speaking to so many other wonderful researchers <laughs> along the way because that's exactly um the same situation for me, I guess. And I really did not think I'd be doing a PhD um, when I left university. And it's for all the, the people I spoke to and interacted with and all the amazing researchers I met in between that I was like, wow, wow, this, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, decision-making is very difficult. Mm. So to jump into something where you're committing to three and a half to four years, I wanted to know that I was genuinely making the right decision and talking to everyone. The gist for PhDs seem to be, it's hard. It's it's possibly <laughs> some of the hardest years that you'll ever go through, but not a single person that I talked to said that if they went back to the beginning, they wouldn't choose to do their PhD. Mm -hmm. They all would go back and do it all over again. And that for me was like the big, yes, this is, it's a good thing. As long yeah. as you're happy with the subject area and the supervisors and everything just kind of sits right, it's it was worth doing. I wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I think, yeah, nobody, I don't think I ever spoke to anyone that said, oh, yeah, it's really easy. Um, it'll take you five minutes. Um, <laughs> but everyone I spoke to, despite the long hours, the difficult um field work all the you know challenges you face along the way with a PhD everybody still seemed to love their topic and um, went home yes often you go home still thinking about your work or still maybe doing some work we're, we're all guilty of that but I kind of thought wow imagine imagine being interested in your job enough to want to spend so much time thinking about it yeah and to be that curious about what you do in you know your day-to-day -day life I thought well that would be awesome <laughs> and haven't you found that you're doing those exact same things <laughs> as well since we started 
it's just a constant buzz of oh I wonder about this I wonder about that it's it's mm -hmm. hard to turn off but I think in some ways that's a bad thing but equally it just shows that we have passion and a love for our subject areas and yeah it's it's almost priceless really it is I think you'll probably find that maybe we're similar in this way you like doing quite a lot of outdoor activities as well <laughs> so when you're outside doing things you like see something you'll be like oh that relates to like this in my PhD or oh maybe I should think about that <laughs> because you kind of get inspiration from nature when you when you work with nature for your job oh definitely yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. So let's chat a bit about that research that you were involved in pre-PhD. So you contributed to a couple of papers that related to some rabies research. Yes, um, I, I had the, the fortune really to assist on multiple projects along PH, uh, alongside PhD students and postdoctoral researchers. Um, so while I didn't lead any research myself, um, being involved in so many different projects with so many different focuses was a really incredible part of the position that I had. Mm -hmm. um, I think the best one to talk about here would be that um, shortly after my position began, I was involved with a, a huge project um, supported by a grant from the World Health Organization which modelled the potential effects of improved provision of rabies post-exposure prophylaxis. So the, the vaccination that you get post-exposure that treats the rabies virus in your system. Okay. Um, it modelled the potential effects of improving this provision in countries that were eligible support from Gavi, which is uh, the Vaccine Alliance. It causes a phenomenal number of deaths worldwide does rabies um, in, in countries that are endemic for it. Um, mm -hmm. We're very fortunate in the UK that we don't have it. In the US, it's not necessarily endemic, but they still have little outbreaks, particularly in some small mammal populations. Mm. Um, but in countries like Tanzania, it's, it's very common and it's quite scary how common it is in some communities. And as word, as word starts to travel um, between these different communities, um, the understanding of the dangers around it improves, which is really wonderful to see. Yeah. Um, so this project had quite a large group of researchers uh, contributing data from many different countries mm -hmm. that were endemic for dog-mediated rabies. And we had several different models that ran under different scenarios. So under the status quo, whether Gavi provided a certain amount of uh, vaccine, whether it went alongside dog vaccination schemes running at the same time. And our findings predicted that under the status quo, between 2020 and 2035, more than one million deaths would occur as a result of rabies worldwide. Wow. With vaccine provision from Gavi, around 190,000 deaths could be prevented while still remaining cost effective um, and the number of deaths dropped further if they were used in combination with risk assessments to determine whether uh, treatment needed to continue, whether it was likely that that person had indeed come into contact with a rabid animal mm -hmm. or if it was used in combination with dog vaccination schemes. 
So an absolutely phenomenal outcome. And we found out not long after publishing that um, Gavi had decided to add the rabies post-exposure prophylaxis to their list of vaccines that was being provided to Gavi eligible countries. Um, so absolutely amazing news. And it means that hopefully we'll be able to start going towards this. We There is a goal to have zero rabies deaths from dog mediated rabies by 2030. And this goes okay. a huge way towards reaching that goal, we hope. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of other projects that are going on, working on um, dog vaccination schemes and their efficiency and how they can be made more effective. And with these becoming more widespread and more common and word spreading between communities to get your dogs vaccinated, mm -hmm. it's all working towards lowering this number of uh, rabies related deaths. Um, so, yeah, an absolutely incredible piece of race, uh, research to be involved with. Wow, that sounds amazing. I it must feel so um, satisfying and worthwhile knowing that you contributed to this research that had, you know, real world implications that has encouraged um, more vaccines to be given out and essentially help save people's lives. Yeah, um, it's hard to believe that I was part of it, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, yeah just incredible it's I think it's it's lovely to be involved in research but when you see real world examples of that research having use or or whatever it just kind of makes it even more wonderful that you've been a part of it um yeah 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 definitely it's nice to feel like you're you're part of something much bigger than yourself that reaches people and lives that you will never meet and yeah I think that's that's absolutely amazing I think it's it's really really cool work that you guys did and it's a real testament to all of your hard work from from all the different skills that must have contributed to that project that that you actually made it happen and and got some some really interesting results yeah yeah it's, it's really awesome I'm like so impressed because it can be hard in research to to have something you know kind of like tangible you can spend months reading and collecting and analyzing data but you don't have you know something to hold or something to see or um do you know what I mean um, yeah I think we're yeah. often encouraged as well at multiple stages particularly over our PhD to justify why we're doing the research mm -hmm. and that justification can often be very small or seem worthwhile to a group of mm. it can seem not worthwhile to yeah. quite a big group of people but to a very select few it could be the most important research in the world yeah. and it's just trying to find who your research applies to and yeah. and yeah <laughs> Let's, let's move on to your current research, um, your perfect PhD that you've found <laughs> and are now living the dream. Um, so can you tell us about what you're doing at the moment? Um, obviously, I mentioned that you're working with Dipper's Long River Systems. Um, and can we chat about a bit about um, Dipper's in general, these bird populations and their behaviours? Yeah, of course. So my PhD, um, I think technically, 
um, plans to explore the environmental basis for spatial and temporal change in riverine bird populations at regional and catchment levels, so large and small scale. I'm using the white-throated dipper as the study species, which is an absolutely amazing songbird um, <laughs> that's found on freshwater rivers and streams throughout Europe and in some parts of Asia. Um, they've got a phenomenally specialised life history um, that makes them perfect for the environment in which they live, um, which I think just makes them like I'm all the more attached to them, really. <laughs> Surveys have indicated that dipper populations were in decline in the UK up to around 1980, which has largely been attributed to freshwater acidification um, through research that demonstrated the extent to which dippers act as a bioindicator for acid pollution. Mm -hmm. um, bioindicators being an organism that can indicate uh, the quality of an ecosystem or an environment. Okay. Following policy changes to reduce air emissions from industry and transport um, in the 1980s and a general shift away from coal as a fuel source, there was a slight improvement in dipper numbers, which likely corresponds to this lowering of acid deposition in the environment, which then finds its way into the river system. So we're seeing this reduction in river acidification. However, there's been a steady decline since the mid-1980s that still remains a bit of a mystery. Um, mm. And this is partly what I'm looking at, um, but there are other researchers that are also looking at this throughout the UK. Um, for me, my plan is to link observed changes in the distribution, population size and breeding success of dippers in the UK uh, to persistent and emerging environmental stresses. And I'm hoping to expand the existing knowledge on how pressures of river ecosystems might be integrated to impact on dipper, dipper populations, mm -hmm. which would extend their use as a bioindicator for other stresses of freshwater ecosystem health, rather than them just being an indicator for acidification, which historically is their main role. Um, the last year <laughs> has complicated progress a little for my research, um, yeah. as it has for many. Um, but I'll hopefully have some specific results to report on quite soon. Um, in terms of what I kind of feel is happening um, from reading, <laughs> from reading a lot of other people's research and mm -hmm. kind of making links and things. I suspect that any process that would impact dippers food supply, which uh, tends to be freshwater macroinvertebrates. Okay. Their ability to find said prey or nest site availability, anything that impacts those three main things would result in a reduction or a complete absence of birds in a river system. And these could be point source pollution from industry or agriculture, increased river levels from either precipitation or if you have increased runoff from urban areas. Um, mm. If you have bank erosion, you've got water abstraction. So water being removed from waterways for use in industry or as storage in reservoirs or even urbanization itself. My issue is that I need to be careful to distinguish between factors that affect the whole ecosystem, 
which mm -hmm. is the aim for an effective bioindicator, really, versus those that are only affecting DIPA. If, if there are factors that are only affecting DIPA, we might see an absence or a reduction in DIPA numbers in a given river system, but it could otherwise be perfectly healthy, so their use as a bioindicator there is not true. Yeah. So I need to be a bit careful. Um, and it's exacerbated by how just how incredibly complicated river systems are. <laughs> yes. um, but they're incredible and it's it's definitely interesting and worthwhile doing. Yeah, this sounds really interesting. Um, whenever I see a dipper when I'm out for a walk, I automatically think of you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Rachel, there's dippers. She'd love to see this. Um, it's spreading. That's that's yeah. my goal. I talk to so many people. I'm just like, look out for dippers. Yeah, and the dipper love. When they when they next see me, they're like, oh, I saw I saw a dipper here. Like, yes. <laughs> so I'm wondering, um, where exactly do dippers build their nests? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> so I suppose the main goal for dippers building their nest is that it is over water. Okay. They want for the nest entrance hole to be directly over flowing water, preferably. And it means that any evidence of them being there is removed by the water. If they're dropping um, little faecal sacs produced by the nestlings out of the nest opening, they're carried away. Okay. Any twigs dropped, leaves dropped, anything like that, um, there's no evidence of it. So they tend to build them on vertical surfaces over water, whether it's um, a natural cliff face, if it's a bridge support, uh, a culvert, anything like that where they've got a relatively vertical surface with a small ledge that they can kind of perch the nest on, they'll mm -hmm. start building. Um, they'll try to avoid really heavily disturbed habitats. So if you've got an area that's used commonly by people going to go and swim in the river, then the dippers probably won't use that because okay. their aim is to not have anyone find their nest. But they're absolutely beautiful. Um, you could probably do an internet search or have a look on my Twitter and find... <laughs> pictures of dipper nests they're completely enclosed with a nest opening sort of towards the bottom and they're made largely of moss mm -hmm. which is wet by the birds as they're building and then dries out on the surface so it kind of creates this lovely molded cup um, and the nestlings sit on a little ledge that's kind of built into the nest um, as they get a bit bigger bigger rather um, you can often see the nestlings poking their heads out as they're looking for the parents coming in with food. Um, <laughs> but if anyone is has found one, I'd advise not to approach it. Le leave them to it um, yeah. unless you know what you're doing because uh, they there's a few risks surrounding monitoring dippers, um, we'll say, um, that I could possibly go into later um, yeah. as well. But no, their the nests are absolutely incredible. One, yeah. Once you've seen one, you'll start seeing them popping up places. <laughs> <laughs> and I really like that you measure that you mentioned um, river freshwater acidification because I think many of us have have heard of ocean acidification. Mm -hmm. um, that's definitely where I've 
I've done more work in the past and you very rarely um, think of or really hear the term um, of, you know, river acidification, freshwater acidification. And I think it is important for us to remember that um, the acidification we are seeing in waters from primarily the use of fossil fuels spreads across every water system and affects organisms, you know, in river systems and oceans. It's it's really kind of a global issue that spans, you know, really from land to sea. Definitely. I think freshwater ecosystems have the added issue that um, the source of the acid deposition comes from it. it, it it gets deposited on leaves and other surfaces so it can find its way into the soils and almost get held as like legacy pollution and all it could take is maybe those trees being removed by a deforestation project or really really heavy rains that just cause everything to come down off of the the slope into the water and you've got what was otherwise a very healthy river system has been transformed back to how it was in the 1980s where it's heavily acidified and many organisms are struggling to survive so i think it's often seen as an issue that we've largely got on top of mm -hmm. but we still see little episodes of acidification occurring in fresh waters mm -hmm. um, so i don't think it's something that we can forget about at least not for now um, and I think it is important that people know about it. As you say, there's, there's been a lot of focus on ocean acidification, which mm -hmm. is equally very important. Acidification yeah. is a bad thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All around bad thing. Your research looks at um, Scottish bird populations, but are these threats mirrored anywhere else in the world to, to birds? It's... <laughs> It's a very difficult question um, <laughs> and without specifically researching cases, um, I, I would say that I suspect so. Um, with dippers, um, the white-throated dipper that we have here in the UK, uh, their distribution spans a lot of Europe, some parts of Northern Africa and into Asia. Okay. So a lot of the threats that they are at risk of in the UK we're likely seeing to some degree throughout their distribution and their range. Um, whether it's things to do with land management, land use change, so swapping to agriculture, mm -hmm. um, forestation and then deforestation, all of these things have an effect on freshwater ecosystems and would therefore have an effect on dippers. Um, there are multiple dipper species throughout the world. I think there's someone will catch me out in this. I think there's five, okay. um, five dipper species and they, they vary slightly in behaviour and their life history but in general all of them are based around river systems so again without specifically researching it I would hazard a guess that some of the threats that I'm looking at for my PhD and that I'm seeing or predicting we would likely see in other dipper species as well mm -hmm. um, but it would be really interesting to actually explore that um, and see if there were any cases where dippers are able to avoid certain threats either through their behavior or their life histories um, 
For birds in general, unfortunately, a lot of the threats to bird populations in the UK and globally are down to us. Um, humans as a species are on an exponential growth and yeah. the demand for housing, transport, cheap mass produced goods all contribute to the removal of habitat or the introduction uh, of pollution to the environment. And I think that the way that land is managed for a given use can also massively affect things. Um, so, for example, if you if you compare a field being converted, it's been purchased and it's going to be converted into a housing estate. The company that's developing it could cram hundreds of houses into an area to maximise profit. Or they could compromise on profit and conserve existing green spaces within the area that they've bought and build fewer houses or incorporate environmentally friendly features such as bird box bricks into the building process. Mm -hmm. So you take that the field conversion is a definite, it's going to happen, it's part of urbanisation, but the way in which that is managed could be for the better or it could be for the worse. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the main causes of biodiversity and population decline in the UK is changes in agricultural practices. Okay. The very presence of agricultural land means there's less woodland or grassland for birds to thrive in, or the available habitat throughout the agricultural land instead becomes incredibly fragmented, which means that you might get small subpopulations of birds that are unwilling to cross between mm. and if you have local extinctions, then they're not likely to ever come back again. I think in addition, the removal of hedgerows to expand field sizes is quite a common practice, or at least was quite common practice in the UK um, through intensification. Uh, it's more habitat removal. Increases in insecticides and fertilizer use removes a lot of the prey items that birds rely on to, to survive. Mm -hmm. But it can also poison birds through accidental ingestion. So you're seeing mortality on both sides of them. Um, for dippers, chemicals used on agricultural land can run off fields into watercourses, which can cause something called eutrophication, which is basically an overabundance of nutrients. And certain plants and other organisms thrive on these nutrients to the point where they completely monopolise the, uh, the environment. Mm -hmm. So you often get huge algal blooms, which blocks all the oxygen and means that no macroinvertebrates, fish, anything else can survive in it. So you end up with complete, there's no biodiversity in these river systems where eutrophication has happened. Um, and it can be really quite devastating in severe cases. Um, mm -hmm. There's been some recent cases in Wales with eutrophication um, where fish have just been like, there's been mass mortalities of fish. Um, okay. So I think they're working on trying to figure out how they can prevent it or reduce the risk of it happening again, because I think it's almost like an annual occurrence. Okay. I don't know very much about the rivers in Wales though. Um, so I, I can't say anything definitively. Yeah. Um, globally, we see an awful lot of deforestation for human activities, particularly for the development of agricultural lands. Mm -hmm. And I know Adam Fell uh, was on your podcast a few weeks ago and he spoke about it. Um, so I won't reiterate because he had some absolutely incredible points. <laughs> but all of this removes habitat 
or prey that birds rely upon, which means that they cannot survive there. Mm -hmm. um, a relatively new issue that's popping up in the UK um, that I think you're probably a bit more familiar with than I am is this drive that the government has to plant more trees to help sequester carbon to reach a net zero by 2050. Yep. From an ecology point of view, so many of these are non-native tree plantations, mm -hmm. which are terrible for general biodiversity. They're great for a couple of species, but for the, the wildlife that would be able to survive there in the absence of the plantation, it's, ju it's just not comparable. Mm -hmm. And I think because they're often planted on what is cheap land, despite the possible consequences to the wildlife that's using that land prior to planting, um, things like grassland birds um, that rely on the grassland to nest have lost that habitat, but also they're potentially gaining new neighbours in the form of corvids, badgers and foxes that are going to then predate them. Yep. And it's a very, very difficult juggling act to manage land for wildlife in a sustainable and environmentally friendly way. And I don't at all envy the, the people that have to do it. I'm, I'm very interested in how it's done, but I've just got no concept of how they do it. <laughs> and yeah. I just hope that we, we're moving in the right direction before it's too late to save species or subpopulations from becoming endangered. Mm -hmm. um, aside from anthropogenic factors, Sorry, this is quite a long-winded answer. Um, <laughs> That's okay. It's, it's, it's so interesting, and I'll touch upon several several points at the end of it. <laughs> Aside from anthropogenic factors, um, climate is a big thing, and factors such as temperature and precipitation are also a huge threat to birds. And it's not just restricted to the UK. You cannot realistically control, or even sometimes predict, the weather. The weather. Many bird species can and have to shift their reproductive phenology, their timing of the reproductive cycle or the migratory timing in response to our changing climate. For example, earlier egg laying is a common response to warming temperatures because it corresponds well to the availability of insect prey. Insects will emerge earlier if the temperatures are warmer, so the birds time it nicely so that they will hopefully have uh, chicks to feed as the insects are emerging. However, uh, while you might have a climate trend that's driving the shift in egg laying dates, for example, you get anomalies in weather where the mismatches in timing can result in poor breeding success or mortalities mm -hmm. from adults that are migrating long distances. Um, for example, this year we experienced quite a cold snap in April and May in the UK, um, which was accompanied by snow in places. Uh, we had a lot of rain down in Midlothian, um, which was causing like small spates every couple of days. Many bird species had already begun breeding at this point, which is energetically costly itself. But they're also having to expend energy to keep warm and to find prey items. Once the chicks then began to hatch, there was little to no food supply in some areas as insect emergence was delayed by the cold temperatures. So what was happening in a lot of cases, which is absolutely devastating, was nests were being abandoned by parents that couldn't feed both themselves and their chicks and survival instincts start kicking in and they have to look after themselves. Wow. 
Some species are able to have multiple breeding attempts, but if they have repeat failures or if the pair fails on their one single attempt for that year, this is when we start to see populations declining and it can take just a couple of years of bad weather that is different from the climate trend to completely obliterate populations. It's quite scary. It's really scary to think that, yeah, it's not just climate that has an effect, but but these um, kind of shorter term changes in weather that can occur, which can be influenced by the larger change in climate. But yeah. OK, so many interesting <laughs> points there. So many. I absolutely I'm so love... sorry. It was like a deluge <laughs> no, of information. <laughs> Fantastic. I love hearing. Um, about how land use change and land use management can influence um, the river systems for birds, because I spend a lot of my time researching how land use change and land management can influence um, carbon cycling. So it's really interesting to see it from a different point of view, from an ecological point of view, <laughs> and from looking at a, at a specific species, because I look at, um, well, for all intents and purposes, mud and water <laughs> a lot of the time. So, you know, I don't see how it affects a, a physical living bird mm -hmm. um, per se. So it's really nice to be able to speak to you, um, learn from you and really be able to relate it to other things in my head as I go about <laughs> doing my own research as well. It's, it's, it's really, really good. Um, you're absolutely right with the um, tree planting. There is a a global, I mean, globally, there's a lot of deforestation and there is a, a burning global desire to increase tree <laughs> planting. Yeah. Um, and largely this is in the name of carbon sequestration and, and carbon storage. But there are, um, there's a lot of research that, that has happened and is currently going on about um, planting the right tree in the right place, which yes. is, is very much um, not all monocultures and not just planting it wherever there's some free land. You've got to assess what um, environmental benefits that land already has and whether by planting a tree you're actually going to increase those environmental benefits or cause degradation to, to what's currently there. Yes, definitely. And I think it's one of those things that it's just with increased learning, which does take years and it does take trial and error. Um, a lot of the, um, a lot of people are now more aware of this. And I think the forestry industry is is more aware of this as our landowners, you know, people that own estates. And I think a lot of it's down to, yeah, learning, understanding and communication. Obviously people that own the land want to make money, but I am quite confident they also don't want to kill everything on it. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it is it is finding this understanding and this balance between um, the environment and ecosystem services and you know the kind of ecological and biodiversity benefits of the land alongside the people that own it and want to utilize it, but also want to care for it largely. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the you've hit the nail on the head with the balance that needs to be reached because I think so many people um, we can almost become warriors for the things that we find important um, so me being like yeah you've got to protect it for the birds but equally 
that's someone's livelihood. They mm-hmm. have to make a choice on what's what's best for them as well as what's best for everybody else. And it, it's it's a really delicate balancing act. Um, it just, I think it's one of those things that there isn't going to be a recipe for everything. They need to assess each situation independently and use what they've learned from all the other cases moving forward. And as you say, hopefully, this kind of learning and experience will will actually help future developments and will hopefully see less monocultures and non-native tree planting and it will kind of get these more specialized patches appearing mm-hmm. absolutely i think that's it i think a lot of it is um could be helped with increased diversification across lar- large pieces of land so not having just you know grazing fields going on forever and you know like you said we've, we've previously taken down a lot of hedgerows to achieve this and now whenever I go walk and I'm walking through farms and they have hedgerows I'm like I listen in and I kind of look to see what's there and it's 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 just really nice to see that these um, are still in place that um, some farms are actually putting them in place when they've previously um, taken them down and yeah, I think with with forestry, a lot of forestry spaces are increasingly becoming multi-use spaces. And I think this is really yeah. going to help the environment as well, you know, because they, they, they cover such large pieces of land. People people love being in a forest. They love being surrounded <laughs> by trees and nature. Maybe it's just us. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's millions <laughs> out there. And um, yeah, to make these spaces accessible for people, pleasant environments for people, and then pleasant environments for nature as well. You can really start to think about planting different types of trees in different areas for different purposes and having a bit more of a mixture. You can have native trees and conifer trees in an area. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm confident that we can create um, the engineering and machinery required to uh, make make best use of these areas so I'm, I'm very hopeful for the future <laughs> of uh, of um, forestry land management in Scotland and elsewhere I think I think there's so much potential and so much good intention and good research to fuel that intention I'm oh yeah. yeah yeah I'm with you on that one <laughs> <laughs> great it's kind of like two two peas in the same pod but we're looking at slightly different things but it's really the same system which yeah yeah I love I, love <laughs> I didn't it. make a connection before but they are quite similar uh topics it's great yeah absolutely I'm I'm looking at very um similar aspects I just relate it to carbon instead of uh a bird <laughs> sure is, is is also made of carbon but <laughs> I don't do that kind of complex carbon uh, <laughs> um, but yeah no that's fantastic that has been so interesting to make those links and learn about it and be able to kind of like share that discussion on on um, how land is used and what it affects. Do you have um, a favourite experience that you would like to share from your research? This could be your current research it could be previous research as well if you like. Um. I did have just one for this, but talking about the rabies work earlier, I have another one that I want to add to it. Um, So I was given the opportunity, (laughs) 
absolutely amazingly uh, to travel out to Tanzania while I was working for Katie. Um, and the aim of me and another postdoc being out there was to work with the field team and see how they actually collected the data that we were working with in the UK so we could kind of more familiarise ourselves with the entire process and understand where issues were likely to occur and where there were um, limitations and challenges to data collection that couldn't be fixed by any data processing or analysis. Mm. Um, so we spent three days out with the team specifically, um, which the team that we were with were doing something called contact tracing. And contact tracing is you hear about either through word of mouth or through hospital records about a potential rabies exposure, which is a bite to a person. And the rabies team were going out and interviewing um, these people that were potentially exposed to rabies and collecting loads of information through these kind of like surveys to figure out was it likely to be a genuine rabies exposure and to then give advice to the people and the families on should they seek post-exposure prophylaxis, do they need treatment for wound washing if it was possibly not a rabid animal but you still need to get the, the wound treated mm -hmm. and also encouraging them to get their own animals vaccinated. Um, so we met so many wonderful people. Um, I don't speak Swahili which is the the language that is generally spoken in uh, Tanzania and we we're based in the very north just above um, Serengeti National Park. Okay. Um, so the lead team member um, spoke both English and Swahili and he translated for us. So he would ask a couple of questions and then translate it back to us so we could understand what was being talked about and ask any questions back again. And one day we walked into quite a remote area and we met this little old gentleman who was the head of his little homestead and he sat and told us about his exposure. If I'm rem remembering it correctly, he, he had come back from a wedding and found a rabid dog on his land and it had gone through most of his livestock biting them. He oh. was then bitten. He had gone out of his way to get his livestock vaccinated because in his eyes he was elderly and the animals were the source of food and profit for his family. Mm -hmm. So he prioritised treating his animals over his own health so that his family would have something should wow. the worst happen. <laughs> Which was absolutely heartbreaking to listen to. And the rabies team did a really good job of being like, that's wonderful, but go get treated. We can give yeah. you names, we can give you people, we can give you health centres, go to see them. Um, but just the energy of this gentleman, we he sat and described the entire incident and because it was quite an interesting story, we we asked him if we could film him. Mm -hmm. um, so we agreed to basically retell the entire story, but because we were now filming him, he started adding in sound effects and actions and he just, <laughs> he was incredible. Like, I don't think I will ever forget him and I, I hope with all my heart that he 
he went and got himself treated and it was successful because mm-hmm. he was remarkable. Uh, the energy and just love for life that he seemed to have and love for his family. Um, yeah, I don't think I'll ever forget him. That was an absolutely amazing experience to to share with the team. Um, yeah, he sounds like a really inspiring person. And <laughs> some of the stories you do you do hear from people you just meet along the way in life are are some of the best ones. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. It's a real pleasure to to kind of be able to go out and actually meet people in communities as well. I'm so happy you were able to do that as part of the research, because when you're looking at something like rabies, but not necessarily like meeting any of the people or animals that it affects so much, um, it can sometimes be like a little bit disjointed. I think it's always really worthwhile and uh, motivating and useful to meet people on the ground and see how it's actually affecting them, see what's actually preventing them go to get treatment. Obviously, in his case, he was like, well, I'll prioritise the rest of my family and, you know, all of my uh, animals instead of himself, which is endearing, but also a bit devastating. Yeah. Yeah. He... He was remarkable. And mm. it, I think you're completely right. You you can become so detached working with data because all you ever see is the computer screen. You see the numbers, you see the names, but they mean nothing to you. Yeah. It's just rows in a spreadsheet. But going out and not necessarily meeting the people that you have the data for, but meeting people that are going through the same, yeah. it just, it's so... I think it's so important in research to understand where your data is coming from yeah. and as much as you possibly can understand the circumstances around the data collection as well. Um, so yeah, I will I will never forget that experience, I don't think. <laughs> I Yeah, I highly doubt you will. I think you'll be telling that in your old age. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, The other experience I have is significantly closer to home and is to do with the field season in general that I've just done. Um, I touched on it briefly a bit before that dippers have, uh, you've got to be very careful around them breeding and nesting. Um, For many birds, they have to strike a compromise between their own survival and rearing their young. So if at any point they feel threatened, or that their life is in danger, you risk abandonment of the chicks. Okay. Fledg- uh, sorry, not fledglings. Dippers are pretty robust in that respect. Um, as long as you're careful around their nests and you're not visiting too often and you're not hanging around for ages, they're normally quite robust and will return to the nest. However, the, the fledglings, when they get to, well, sorry, no, the chicks, when they get to a certain age, the risk of them exploding from the nest um, in almost like an early fledge is quite high. So you have this time period where you can visit the nest and then after that you cannot revisit it and you have to almost predict when you think they're going to fledge um, so that you can check the outcome. Um, So nest monitoring in general is a really rewarding experience. Um, it's a citizen science, proje- citizen science project that's run by the British Trust for Ornithology in the UK, okay. otherwise known as the BTO. 
and you don't need any qualifications, you don't need any formal training. You just need an understanding of what you can and can't do around the nests that you are monitoring for them. Quite a lot of people will either do one-off nests or uh, say if you've got a load of nest boxes in a woodland, you'll have someone probably monitoring them and collecting data on all the, the species that are in them. For me, because I was going to be doing this kind of like data collection over the breeding season, I thought it's no, it's not difficult for me to go that little extra bit further and collect data that the BTO can use for their nest monitoring scheme. Mm -hmm. So I signed up for the scheme, um, read through <laughs> read through lots of information, and then began my journey. Um, and I think it's it's such a privilege to be able to see baby animals. Um, mm -hmm. It's something that I don't think I'll ever be able to get over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously it comes with so many precautions. Um, and knowing when to step away, even though you're just like, you're getting very excited <laughs> in baby animals. So if cute. the circumstances <laughs> at any point are not right, yeah. you shouldn't do what you were planning on doing. For example, if Dipponests are quite liable to being predated. So mm -hmm. had I heard any predators or seen any predators in the vicinity of a dipper nest, I wouldn't have been able to check it because me being there is almost like a big beacon being like, here is a nest with chicks in, come get it. Okay. Which would then potentially result in that nest being lost. Yeah. So I think <laughs> from, from a very roundabout way, um, my favourite experience from my fieldwork over the last three-ish months has been being able to watch the dippers going from nest build to eggs being laid to chicks hatching mm -hmm. to chicks fledging and then seeing them out on the river being looked after by their parents still but largely learning to become independent and it's just been so lovely to witness <laughs> and again yeah. it's one of those things that I don't think I'll ever be able to forget I in fact I'm hoping that after my PhD when I don't need to collect this data anymore I want to continue monitoring dippers um, mm -hmm. and collecting the data because it's just so wonderful they're such a lovely species to watch grow up yeah, it must feel like a privilege to be able to kind of be um, privy to the life of a dipper. <laughs> and it's wonderful to be able to see that within the space of a few months, because obviously in comparison to humans, you could could wait a lifetime to, to see someone become independent. <laughs> so to see, you know, it's, it's a real pr privilege and a pleasure to see that in nature and see something, you know, that was born just a period of months ago actually become a self-sufficient, fully-fledged individual. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. And I'll add to that simply by saying that if it is something that any listeners are interested in doing, you can go to the BTO website and there's loads of information on a tab that I think is called How You Can Help. 
and they have loads of different citizen science projects that you can sign up for. Um, but the nest monitoring one in particular, um, you need very little skill for other than identification and a willingness to be very, very, very cautious and respectful of the birds that you're monitoring. And it's a very rewarding experience. Well, I think you've definitely sold it to, <laughs> to me and um, to others. I was going to ask you about, about citizen science projects. So it's amazing to see that um, BTO have options that are really accessible for people who have a curiosity and have a love and interest in nature. Um, and, you know, as long as we are respectful and give the animals the boundaries that they need to live their lives, um, then, yeah, we can kind of help from the sidelines. Oh yeah, definitely. They, if if nest monitoring isn't your thing, um, they have quite a lot of other projects that are on the go, um, mm -hmm. ranging from something that's called the Garden Bird Watch, which basically just asks you to sit and watch your garden and make a list of anything that comes by, mm -hmm. to full blown. Uh, surveys that require very, very specific methodologies, um, such as the Waterways Breeding Bird Survey, where volunteers walk along a section of river or canal and record absolutely everything that they see and hear. Okay. Um, so for a lot of the surveys, the only thing that the BTO requires of you is that you have some identification skills. Mm -hmm. You don't need any formal training or qualifications. And if you are struggling, the BTO run ID courses and for some of the surveys are quite happy to provide you with a mentor to kind of help guide you through the process so you're more familiar with what's actually required when you come to do it by yourself. Awesome. Um, and it's not just collecting data for data's sake. Um, the data from just about all the surveys goes into these huge online databases which you can get access to. Um, but they're mainly used by the BTO staff to monitor bird populations, detect trends, understand movement and migrations, mm -hmm. um, record longevity records, so the, the number of years that birds are living for, um, and assess impacts as well, which are all so important. Um, if anyone out there likes birds, um, <laughs> it, depending on your skill level or your time I suppose because some of the surveys do yeah. require more time than others then yeah go and go and check out their website because they have some really cool surveys that you can take part in and actually contribute to some really really cool bird research. Fantastic I guess that's the thing you don't need to um, you know not everybody needs to be doing a PhD or doing a research job as their you know nine to five week in week out to to contribute to and um, helping these bird populations and, and helping the environment you can easily have it as a hobby if you like and oh, yeah. do it in some of your spare time um yeah oh fantastic that was that is really lovely to hear and i'm really pleased that there's ways that people can get involved so easily um so i definitely encourage everybody to give it some consideration even if it's that you check out the website and you start taking more of an interest in what's around you then that's a really great place to start so i've got a quick fire round of questions and <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a top tip for helping the environment on a day-to-day -day basis oh 
Um, <laughs> there's so many things that we can do. Um, mm -hmm. I think my top tip and something that I'm trying to do myself is to invest in good quality everyday reusable items such as yeah. water bottles, a coffee cup if you if you like going to takeout places or a shopping bag. I think reusable items are becoming more and more popular which is driving the development of more products that were previously disposable mm -hmm. which is wonderful and I know it's often seen as a bit of a taboo subject, but for example, many companies are now set up to provide safe, reusable or environmentally friendly menstrual products, which ordinarily create an absolutely ridiculous amount of waste. So mm -hmm. by simply swapping to these these alternatives, we can kind of help reduce our waste going to landfill and ending up in rivers and the sea and uh, every other environment that waste can end up in. Mm -hmm. um, I think the extra bonus is that these products are often made of more environmentally friendly materials themselves so yeah. their production and end of life when it comes to kind of recycling a lot of them are made of aluminium glass and bamboo which is so much better for the environment than plastic um, so yeah I would say find reusable items that you can replace with uh, you can replace disposable items within your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great one. I think, um, you know, it's just being conscious of when you're about to put something in the bin and thinking, could that have been in something reusable or or something like that? Um, and yeah, there's a point I was going to make there. Oh yeah, I, I, I heard somewhere, I think this actually might have been another podcast. Somebody said, um, plastic recycling is just a myth created by oil companies and <laughs> um, because yeah they obviously um also make plastics so um yeah if you can find things that are reusable obviously recycling is 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 great i fully encourage it if you if you do have disposable things that you recycle them but um if you can just not even have to recycle it then that's even better yeah, it's a nice little <laughs> bonus. Yeah. Um, do you have a favourite resource for environmental information? I, I think this has been said a couple of times on the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, I think Twitter is my main source of information, yeah. particularly as a lot of environmental con uh, topics just aren't covered by main news networks, no. frustratingly. Um, uh, with anything online, you need to take information with a grain of salt um, and do further reading or research. But for me, it's a great opportunity to almost like curate my own news feed yes. of people and organisations whose research I'm interested in um, and develop my network, but also learn new things um, that are either just completely out of my knowledge area. Um, I follow a lot of people involved in bird monitoring and research activities because that's kind of what I'm currently working in. Um, but I'm trying to branch out into other sectors so that I can see what's going on locally, nationally and globally. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, Twitter is very, very helpful right now. Yeah, I think curating your own newsfeed is a really good way to look at it, kind of following the people in the, in the research and the companies that you you know, are curious about that you want to want to hear about. I would absolutely love if there was just like a morning 
environmental news channel like you know sometimes oh, I put the news on in the morning and I think I do you know I'd rather <laughs> I'd rather this is just all environmental <laughs> I really surround myself in the full environment bubble um <laughs> but yeah it, it it would be nice if there was uh you know an hour a day of environmental news on the BBC oh, we can dream <laughs> Even if it's like a dolphin was saved today, that's news people want to hear. Yes. You know, <laughs> um, happy news and sad news, all of it. Um, we're here for it. Um, do you want to share with us your favourite way to connect with nature? Oh, um, yes. Um, for me, and I think for many others over the last year, it's simply to get outside. Um, I, I often struggle with persuading myself to leave the house and I can become a bit of a shut-in, which is at complete odds, complete frustrating odds with my love for the outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, but I generally find that once I'm outside, it's just instantly calming, no matter what is going on. It's just that sense of tranquility that get you get from being outside. Um, so for me, I, I love going for walks and bike rides. Um, but one of my favourite activities is to go either canoeing or kayaking, which I've been doing since my undergrad degree. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have my own equipment. So when the feeling takes me, I can just go off and mm -hmm. have a bit of a paddle. But it's it's normally quieter than being on a bike or being in a walk with other people. You're sharing a much larger area if you are mm -hmm. going to be sharing it. Um, and it's a good opportunity to see nature as well that I think you would disturb a lot more if you were walking past them. But if you sit in a boat and you're completely quiet and you're not moving, nature almost mm. comes to you. So it's, yeah, I think for me, um, water sports is definitely the way uh, for me to connect with nature. That sounds so lovely. I think you're really right. When you put yourself in kind of these different perspectives, whether you're up on a hill down in a valley or in the water you see nature in completely different lights and you have different interactions with it mm -hmm. um and yeah the amount of sound you're making has such an influence <laughs> on on what you see and what you can interact with um if anything the slower you walk <laughs> the more you're likely to see <laughs> for me as well though the more likely I am to fall over I lose my balance if I'm walking slowly it's a nightmare <laughs> oh dear okay well that well, that could end up in a lot of noise so maybe not but uh <laughs> all right ruckus um oh fantastic no water sports does does definitely sound really nice and I guess it's interesting to think that you could be um paddling in spaces that you you find interesting from a research perspective as well yeah it, it had occurred to me but my my study rivers are a little bit too low uh, I wouldn't yeah. be able to get a kayak safely down <laughs> best to avoid them then <laughs> um do you happen to have a favorite environmental company um I mean this could be something large something small yeah so I'm I'm trying to swap to more environmentally everyday products currently. Um, when my hair is shorter, um, I tend to use shampoo bars rather than um, ones that you can buy more commonly in the shops. But at my current length of post-pandemic hair, um, it, it just doesn't work quite as effectively. 
Um, I recently started using a natural deodorant from a company called Wild and I've been really, really impressed with how they operate. Um, you basically buy their aluminium case okay, and then you purchase refills for the case as required, either on a one-off basis or via their subscription service, which is really flexible and you can change what dates you want delivered or what scents you want. Mm -hmm. The refills are vegan, uh, cruelty-free and free of chemicals and irritants that are commonly used in other antiperspirants and other deodorants. Yeah. And then just to like top it all off, once you're done, uh, the refills are made of almost like a bamboo shell. So okay. that is compostable and can go into your food waste bin. Oh, I love it. All of their packaging is plastic free and fits through your letterbox. So you don't have any issues of having to go off to your local post office to pick up because it's been a failed delivery. Um, and and they offset their carbon <laughs> by donating a proportion of their sales to the On Emission charity, which enables investment in sustainable reforestation projects. Um, I'm, <laughs> it's probably TMI, I'm normally quite a sweaty person. I rely or have previously relied on antiperspirants quite heavily. And since swapping to the natural deodorants, um, they don't stop sweating, but they smell great and they just feel so much better on your skin. I think mm -hmm. the lack of chemicals in them, they're really lovely to use. So if if anyone is interested um, in swapping to a more natural deodorant, um, mm -hmm. I think for some people there's a bit of almost like a trial period where your body has to almost get used to it. For me, yeah. it wasn't very long and I was using some really intense antiperspirants. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd stick with it. It's definitely worth it. Fantastic. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, I am a very sweaty person in general as well. And <laughs> um, like you, enjoy doing activities, enjoy going out and doing things. So yeah, having a deodorant that works um, to some extent, basically making you not smell <laughs> intolerable to everybody else around you is um, really important <laughs> just for your self-esteem, if nothing else. So it's really great to hear this company do this because I have actually seen them advertise recently. I thought, oh, I, I wonder if anyone I know uses them so I could get a, you know, in-person review. So here we are. Yeah. <laughs> I, I um, can recommend them. Yeah, that's definitely encouraging. Um, okay, the big question. What is your favourite bird species and why? <laughs> Is it the dipper or are you choosing something else? Oh, it's it's a nightmare question for a birdie person. <laughs> um, I've got too many favourites. Um, I will always flag the fly, uh, fly the flag for dippers um, because they're amazing. Um, they're so unique, um, particularly in the UK, for their incredible life history adaptations to rivers from their choice of nesting locations to how they swim and walk along the bottom of rivers while hunting for prey. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> that being said, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to go with a species that you'll find really commonly in the UK, which is the blue tip. Um, yeah. For starters, they're absolutely beautiful. Um, there's just this I, for me, it's lovely just seeing this flash of yellow, blue and green, like going through the trees and knowing instantly that's a blue tit. Mm -hmm. um, that they're really great parents. Um, they tend to spend just over a month dedicating their year to raising a brood of maybe around eight chicks. 
and many pairs will watch their chicks leave the nest over the next couple of weeks, I think. So if you're any good with binoculars or have feeders set up in your garden, keep an eye out for any recently fledged chicks. Um, they will look fairly similar to the adults, but they look more grey green. They almost don't have any blue in them altogether, so you might mistake them for another species. But the parents will be there keeping an eye on them. So, yeah, <laughs> keep an eye out. I think the thing that's most spectacular to me about them is for a bird that weighs around 10 grams, which is the same as a non-electric toothbrush, mm. they're incredibly territorial and aggressive towards intruders. <laughs> oh um, if you're walking along, you'll often hear them cackling in the trees if you happen to walk into their territory. Uh, when we process them for bird ringing, you're lucky if you can release the bird without being nipped or bitten. Um, on the fingers and I just love that something so small can be just so aggressive to something so big <laughs> I love their tenacity they're just they're something else they sound like characters for sure <laughs> it's the perfect phrase for them they are characters <laughs> oh fantastic um so to round this off where can listeners find um, you online find out more about um the research that you're involved with um, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Rachel S. Deanson, um, where I post a mixture of PhD, bird and life related content. Um, I have an Instagram under the same name, but I've been pretty quiet on there recently. Um, mm -hmm. I think mostly just trying to not overuse my phone, but I'm hoping to have some yeah. pictures on there soon um, of my fieldwork that I've been doing. I also have a website that is linked to on my Twitter profile, um, but this is currently undergoing a bit of maintenance, so it, it'll possibly look a little bit out of date. Um, with my field season winding down, I'm hoping to have some blog posts out soon, um, so keep an eye out on that. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been really oh, lovely. You're very <laughs> I had an absolutely amazing time speaking with Rachel on the podcast. She has such passion, enthusiasm and positivity towards her research. I hope you all found it just as interesting and engaging as I have. It just goes to show that in research you can end up in Tanzania one year and Scotland the next and they're both just as interesting and exciting as one another. I really appreciated hearing Rachel's journey and it just goes to show when you start something you don't always know where you want to end up and you don't always know how you're going to get there every job and task you do along the way and every inspirational person that you speak to um, really contributes towards um, where you're meant to be. Thank you for listening to another episode of Our Earth.